This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with physicist and contemplative Arthur Zayants and research psychologist Michael McCullough. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. Um, okay. Oh, so you wanted us to speak among ourselves. <laughs> Except you can hear us. Um, so uh, we, we're going to um, have a conversation up here for maybe... I know, but everybody can hear me anyway. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. Okay. There we are. Now you can officially hear me. Um, we're going to have a conversation up here for 45, 50 minutes. Then we will open it up to you, invite your questions and comments, have some more back and forth, and then uh, we'll come back to the three of us and finish up. We are uh, recording this for possible broadcast, which also means that I'm going to have to assume that, you know, Many hundreds of thousands of people who might be hearing this conversation did not just hear the presentations. Um, but I also want to take off on some of the writing that the two of you have done previously, on, specifically on the Humans and Nature site, and on this question of mind and morality. Um, I want to say thank you to Kira, and thank you also to Brooke. And, uh, you know, we started talking about this months ago, and it seemed like forever in the future, and here we are. And it's great to be here, and I'm really delighted to be part of this project and these wonderful questions. I like great questions. Um, and it seemed to me as I prepared that, that a little bit of um, definition of terms is in order. You know, the words mind and morality are quite large. Um, let me just say also before I start that I've interviewed both Michael McCullough and Arthur Zients for On Being, and uh, and it's but actually neither of those conversations was in person, right? And I've since met you both, but we've never actually had a conversation live. I'm also going to say no visuals. We're going to have, I believe, in the spoken word. This is mere conversation, um, and uh, and they are quite different characters, which I think is going to make for a fun. Uh, conversation among us, but I think both of you um, juxtapose in your person and in your scholarship qualities and interests that the culture doesn't always bring together. I especially have always loved talking about Arthur as a physicist and contemplative. <laughs> I like that that conjunction. Um, I like it too. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, um, so, Arthur, here's a definition that you of, of yours of morality from something you wrote. Um, morality concerns the nature and quality of our relationship with other people and by extension to the world of which we are a part. Now, what I'm aware of is that the word morality gets thrown around a lot in religion and in culture and in culture wars, and I thought maybe as a way to start, to just to ground this in personal experience, which I like to do, um, I wonder if you might each talk a little bit about uh, 
kind of the, your trajectory with the word morality. What, and specifically, what did the word morality connote in your earliest life? You know, where did it come from? What was it linked to? Um, and, 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 and just a little bit about where you are now with that. I mean, I can tell you what morality meant to me growing up Southern Baptist, but this is not about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as a, as for, for me, uh, certainly starting out in my career, it was probably how I thought about morality was very much how I thought about it as a, as a kid, which was you know, a set of things you should be about, you should be doing or, or not doing. And so uh, I think I was always sort of equating morality with, with virtues or, or character traits. Um, I think morality is larger than that, actually. And, and some of the things that, that are, are moral are not really tied to, to virtue per se. I mean, are you allowed to buy beer on Sundays or aren't you? Can you go to the, can you, can you buy, can you go to the store on Sundays or, 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 or can't you? Should the stores be open? Um, uh, some of them have nothing to do with harming or hurting others, actually, for, for that matter. They seem to be sort of almost arbitrary lines in the sand that uh, societies make, um, possibly for different functions than getting along with each other. So I think as I've moved through my career in thinking about morality, uh, it's, I've started to see morality as being about more than simply helping and harming, um, or even about religious piety, but also about fairly, um, maybe fairly uh, abstract and almost arbitrary sorts of concerns as well. Okay. Well, and we'll pick up, we'll keep going on that. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I guess um, morality goes back to my Catholic upbringing. So it was a lot about guilt, you could say. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, sins and venial sins. About and, missteps. Yeah, yeah. You're always worried about being, you know, caught out somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there was confession, so you got you got. So it was okay. You know, yeah, it was okay. Absolution yeah. and remission for all your sins, that kind of thing. But then at some point, that that felt impossible. You know, it couldn't just be about a kind of legislation given by an ecclesiastical hierarchy. There had to be a deeper source. And uh, there also had to be the possibility of ethical conduct. By that I mean if you're unfree, if, if everything is just predetermined, you know, in some kind of great mechanical universe, you know, where all the positions and momenta are given and then the wheels of calculus move and, and then everything is given, can you act morally? You know, so first you have to come out concern yourself with the possibility of being free in some small, tiny, itty-bitty part of your nature at least. Not necessarily with all of your being, but just you know, a foothold, a little space in the deterministic universe. And so science was an interesting, especially modern science, you know, became an interesting place to explore the failure of deterministic thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's chaos dynamics or quantum mechanics or what have you, you begin to feel that, well, maybe it's more porous, at least in principle. And maybe the biological imperatives aren't complete. Maybe there is a space for freedom. And in that case, maybe there is a question of right action that's, uh, that's morally grounded and, and true. But then, if you take away all of the imperatives of parents, priests, teacher, peer group, biology, right? All of which have, have tremendous force on us. And you create a space. Well, then what is your moral compass? What is 
the means by which you live a life. And for me, that led into this more contemplative orientation. You know, can I explore that directly? Not sort of hypothetically, but can I begin to feel my way or meditate my way into that space of openness? Is there, is there something which can become uh, the axis for a life? And that's where this knowing becoming love. Is there a way in which I can know that, that feels morally connected to a center that I can, I can place my life inside of? And so that's become a lived experience for me. It's not something which I believe I can convey to others other than just by invitation. It's a presence that you cultivate moment to moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah I that think, encounter with exactly. that question. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the reason why uh, it's hard to argue. It's more like an invitation to sit down and be quiet and go, to go on the journey. It's an empirical result. It's, a, it's an individual epiphanal moment. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. You know, if you're not even willing to entertain the possibility, well, then how can it be demonstrated? It can't be demonstrated. Mm-hmm. So we could keep going for an hour just on teasing uh, out yeah. this definition, but it's, um, I'm, I'm glad I asked. I think that's an important thing to lay out. Um, and we'll, we'll keep moving in and around that. Um, Rene Descartes, whose picture we just saw, um, You've noted that uh, that we're still very formed by his ideas. You know, as much as you could give examples where uh, we've come a long way, um, and even that uh, with cutting edge developments in in many aspects of science, it's possible for us in a new way to think of ourselves even as machines who enter into social agreements, or to think of morality as a merely adaptive behavior. Um, but you, you've said even, even more strongly, you've said very strongly in your writing, even more strongly than you, than you said in the lecture today, that, um, that subjectivity is real and it is our friend, that yeah. the insides of the new physics of quantum mechanics, um, although we cannot, you know, you're, the picture, I think the picture you showed of the, of the, the high five, the, the trick is, right, that our five senses don't, don't give us that access to the sense of time and space that Einstein described and that physics describes. Um, but, uh, but, the, the, but, you know, but, you, but what you are, are bringing home is that the reality is expansive, that sub- subjectivity is real, it is our friend, that in fact this new science, and I want to ask you to say more about this, um, that it is a radical reorientation towards life, and in it we regain the foundations for our moral life. Yeah. So, the, the argument goes something like this, right? That since the 17th century, mechanism and matter have dominated. And oddly enough, they still dominate. Especially in the worlds, I think, of chemistry, molecular biology, and neuroscience, and so forth. They still dominate. Around 1900, we went through, 1900, 1925, physics went through a revolution where we began to realize, well, to a certain approximation, we can neglect the observer, but we can't neglect the observer if we look carefully, if we do our science carefully. We are always implicated. We are always implicated in quantum mechanics and relativity. There is a subjective dimension, subjective not in the sense of arbitrary or, or capricious, but there is an observer or an imagined observer everywhere. 
And the universe requires this. This is not something which you can sort of say, well, it's a nice way of thinking about things. But in order to make sense of a cosmos, in order to have a cosmos at all, you need that element in there. So there is no objective view from outside the system where you're looking at the whole thing play out according to some you know, universal story. There is only the individual contextualized story. So it's always a story to me. So, so, that, so that our experience is the only real thing in some... Yes, exactly that. It's odd, but it throws us back on experience. It throws us back on subjectivity, not in the sense of, again, capricious or arbitrary, but in the sense of connected to my person. And what your explanation may be may be quite different than my explanation if you're in relative motion to me, for example, but we will be consistent through this you know, this, this, this strange set of transformations called the Lorentz transformations. But basically, I will understand that yours must be different than mine. But there is no place which is privileged. So your story is as good as my story. Again, not arbitrary. So what one finds is that it's like subjectivity all the way down. You know, not turtles all the way down, but subjectivity all the way down. And then, mm-hmm. from that standpoint, subjectivity becomes, rather than the enemy, becomes the friend. Rather than seeing, we have to get rid of the observer, which was the old Newtonian universe. In order to really get at some kind of pure get truth, at the a reality, pure reality. Yeah, that this yes. is all epiphenomenal illusion, right. right? Colors, pain, you know, pressure on the skin, all of that is just epiphenomenal illusion. No, 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 no. Slow down. That's all you have, all the way down. If you try to get to something which has no experiential dimension, this is strange. You're going to explain the experiential world by something which can't be experienced or imagined because that would also be an experience. So how is it you're going to do this? So, so forget that story. Move to one where the subjectivity is ontologically privileged. It, it has standing. And, and then can you feel how then, then once you have that, the moral dimensions of life come back in? Because by... by sanitizing the world of subjectivity, you basically leave out the moral possibilities. Mm-hmm. There is no suffering, really. Right? Really. There's and it, mechanism. And it comes, and the moral dimension of life comes back in because what you do matters ultimately. What you do, what you experience is, is reality. It it, is it's reality. a strange thing, you know, what... We experience in life as our real world, the world of uh, children and suffering and getting old and getting born and all the rest of it. You know That sensual, lived world of experience, in the old view, gets explained away in terms of a whole set of other things. Sometimes I think of this as an idolatry. You know, if you're, you're pointing at the gods, but you can't really see the gods, so you create a statue. Same sort of thing in physics, you know. You can't see that far, so you create a, a model, we call it, right? And then you fall in love with the model, and it becomes a form of idolatry. You end up worshipping the model as opposed to the thing you were trying to understand, which was mainly like the human being or the planet or the whole cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. But you create your models, and then they become so attractive that they become the thing that garners all your attention. So you need to be an iconoclast, in some mm-hmm. sense, to take those down and re animate your direct experience, your direct epiphanies and insights into that world of pattern and, right. and so forth. So it's a world still of science, and, but it's empirically oriented. It's contextual in the sense that there's always a context. There's no out of the frame. There's always a subjective element. And yet by taking that turn, you also connect back into lived experience in a way that to me opens up the moral and ethical dimensions of life once again. Okay. And Michael, I think that 
provides a cosmic context for the work you do, which is about the evolution of morality. I mean, I don't want to. I want to say this correctly. I mean, one of the, you, you in your work take um, take an evolutionary perspective on moral emotions, yeah. and I wonder also. I just want to ask you if if that move that you are making and and that your colleagues are making is. Is it similar in some way to the to a shift of worldviews, like from Newtonian to, to uh, physics? To I, I'd say, if anything, it's hyper Newtonian. You would, I, yeah, because I, the advances that biology has made is, has been through the endorsement and uh, active placement of of faith based on evidence on the notion that animacy is being driven by mechanism that to the extent that you see order in the in the living world it is being driven by mechanism um so when i when i when i think of i don't read a lot of advances in um quantum biology i mean most most of the journals are not don't have large sections on quantum biology yeah um what you do have is a, a a reliance on the notion that to the extent that you see order in the biological world, it's it's because it's it's order that's being created by mechanism that evolved due to natural selection. Mm-hmm. So when I when I think about, I mean, it's an odd place. I think we end up in similar places ethically, but I actually see mechanism as our friend. So um, there is a mechanism f- in my head to create an illusion that you have a person in your mind. There's a person animating your body, and that person has uh, preferences and beliefs and feelings. And I treat you as someone who has this little person inside of you grinding the gears. I couldn't, my social relationship to you really would fall apart if I didn't have this tendency to impute a, a, a mind to you. Mm-hmm. And we, we know people, for example, people with severe autism seem to lack this ability, this theory of mind. That, of course, is an illusion, right? I'm generating an illusion. Um, so, but I couldn't live an ethical life very easily without the ability to, to, to thrive on the basis of this illusion. So for you, mind and personhood are an illusion? That's not what you're saying, is it? Well, I, my, mind is what the brain produces. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the notion that there's a little person in there, sort of there's a person inside of a person inside of a person, ultimately there's a little homunculus, you know, making the thing go, kind of driving the whole body. Is, it's, it's a fairly deep sort of illusion that we, we create in order to, to make our lives work. Um, it's a it's a good trick, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, so but um, I think a lot of your science um, is about suggesting that we have power and choices to um, not to not just do what seems to be adaptive, um, but to actually become more moral. Yeah, both individually and collectively. Right. By choosing to cultivate practical habits, um, well, we're we're special because we have this ability to guide our behavior by ideas, right? Not just the sort of immediate constraints or or, or 
or, or forces acting on us. And that is something really, really special. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the, produ- the ability to produce these ideas is a mechanism-driven kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, humans are, humans are special. We're not uniquely special. Lots of everything, everything is special in biology. But, but this ability to, to, to uh, produce ideas and then represent them and then broadcast them to other, other parts of the mind is extraordinary, is extraordinary. It can almost make you think we're free of mechanism. It's mm-hmm. so, it's such, we have so many of these mechanisms that we're able to, to kind of take in broadcasts from this idea-generating system that you can almost think we're free. We'll come back to that, too. Um, the idea of moral progress. I mean, one of the things that you've written is that, um, that the barrage of bad news on any given day uh, seems to counter the idea, or in your mind can obscure the idea, that the story of Western civilization, in fact, is a story writ large of moral progress. Yeah. Um, and, and an interesting idea that you've uh, raised, uh, and this is on the Humans and Nature site, was that we have overemphasized moral outrage yeah. as a driver of moral progress. I think right. that's a really fascinating idea. Um, yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've noticed is that I, I call it the, the network theory of moral progress, which is, is that um, people see an injustice and that there's an emotion there that animates them to make changes in the world. Um, and this is a... This it's is a, that I'm mad as hell and I'm not yeah, going to take it anymore. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's why I call it the network theory. Right. Um, but I think anger is sort of overrated as an engine for moral progress. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like many of our emotions, it, is, it tends toward the egocentric side. It tends to, we tend to marshal it for our own strategic ends. Um, we, it serves us and our kind very well, but we're, it's a very rare thing when we can uh, experience it on behalf of someone who's different from us, who are, or who's not kith and kin. Right. I mean, one of the things you say is that, in fact, the scientific evidence that we really do experience moral outrage on behalf, some kind of pure outrage on behalf of a stranger is kind of flimsy. It's flimsy. I mean, if you, certainly if you ask people, Look, did you see what that person did? That must make you angry. They'll, of course, I say, yeah, I'm angry about that. But one of the disturbing, thing, disturbing things we're seeing in experiments we do in my laboratory is that unless people are cued to be attentive to it, they are sort of surprisingly indifferent to how strangers are being mistreated. Um, there's disturbing research. It's not even, not even my own research um, by a Canadian social psychologist who asked people what they would do if they were sitting in a waiting room and there were three white guys and a black guy in the room and the black guy gets up out of the room to go, I don't remember what the story was, to get something out of his car. And then one of the other two white guys in the room makes a racial slur. You know, what, what would the, their feelings be when they saw this event happen? And everyone says, I'd be outraged. I would, be, I would say something. I would stick up for this guy who was... Who was who was you know maligned uh, you know with this racial slur? She actually went on and ran the experiment, 
to see how the subjects behaved when they were one of three people, two, two uh, Confederates and uh, a third Confederate who was the African-American guy. And he leaves the room and one of the two Confederates makes this racial slur. People did nothing. They saw it happen, they heard it happen, and uh, their behavior was not at all changed. Uh, so, even, so even if they, if they felt the moral outrage, it didn't mean anything, it, it didn't express itself in, in action, it didn't change anything. It didn't change anything, and, and I'm not sure they even felt any okay. anger. And, okay, but so, and, you know, um, some of your work, your work on revenge and forgiveness is very interesting, because one of the things you're saying is, that, yes, we are hardwired for revenge, and in fact, it's, had a lot, it's made a lot of sense in human society, even even sometimes towards the application of justice, um, but we're also hired, hardwired for things, for virtuous yeah. actions, for for moral actions that are good for other people, like forgiveness. Um, so I, you know, so I want to ask you, you know, if if moral outrage isn't the trigger that it's true, we really, really think of moral outrage. I mean, we are we are a society of advocates, right? You're right. Um, then then what? Um, what activates, what has the power to, to activate, you know, the instincts to moral repair, to care for the stranger that are at the heart of our religious traditions that actually do manifest yeah. again and again yeah. in human society and that lead to this kind of moral progress that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a friend of empathy and compassion, you know. I think they have a, a role to play. Um, I think they suffer some of the same... Uh, constraints that anger does in that they, I mean, the, the psychologist Paul Bloom has written about this eloquently. Uh, empathy is innumerate, you know, so it, it causes you to identify with individuals in sort of a, with a lack of proportionality. So, um, you know, one of, one of my, one of the most interesting examples about this is, uh, is uh, blood donations after 9-11. I mean, the, the, the units and units, the, the th- hundreds of thousands of units of blood that poured into uh, the New York City blood banks in, in, after 9-11 was just incredible. In actual fact, it, was, it, it crippled the system. They couldn't, ha- they couldn't process the blood quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, right now, there are blood banks that need us to get up from our seats and go give blood. We should, all, we should go right now, stop this, and go give a unit of blood. That's what we should do right now. And yet you're not doing it. You're still in your seats. So I find, I find there to be really interesting limitations on, the, on, on knowledge to work through emotions to make moral mm-hmm. action happen. Mm-hmm. So let's go, right? We, we're not going to go. We're going to sit here and finish this <laughs> We're up. being enlightened. Yeah. But so, so empathy... Okay, so you're saying empathy has its limits too, but is empathy... Um, a more effective trigger when it when it becomes conscious when it's when it's becomes motivated yeah than moral outrage yeah i mean i think i mean one of the things that seems to be one of the ways that societies have have dealt with these problems is that the i mean this is david hume this is peter singer um, we start by being able to extend sort of a, a sense of humanness. Mm-hmm. The, the people we call other humans gets larger and larger as society, as, as 
education increases, as technology increases, as cosmopolitanism increases, and we're able to empathize with more and more people. We're able to identify more of them as humans. So for the Greeks, they could, you know, the people of Athens could, re- could view other property-holding men as humans, but that's kind of as far as it went. Now we look at that and say, well, that, you know, that's a savage way to think about what a human is, right? right? So, we, you know, we've come a long way, baby. And it's, but it, it's, it's been in part through um, recognizing, I think, you, really with reason, that we make some of these divisions are very arbitrary. So here's why I like mechanism too. I mean, to the extent that we're learning that a brain is a brain is a brain, that a human genome is a human genome is a human genome, and for all the important bits, they are the same. Um, the, the the reasons for treating any person differently from any other in a moral sense becomes un, untenable. You can't. It's, it, there's no there's no good argument for it. Um, I want to encourage you to speak to each other if you feel like it or or um you know Arthur and you know you're 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 coming from such different places it's really fascinating and I um when you talk about uh some language that you've used in terms of connecting contemplative practices to education to leadership but I think you know just to human life um seems to me to speak to that a bit in terms of activating um Empathy, you know, you said mindfulness practice includes the primacy of awareness and the quality of one's attending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, to me, I always feel kind of, you uh, know, somersault, Michael, uh, because on the one hand, Mechanism, as uh, as you describe it, well, a lot of life, my car runs as a mechanism. I'm glad for that. I know how to fix it. Uh, but I also know that there are aspects to life which, at least as far as I can detect, uh, aren't mechanistic. And in particular, this, for example, line of argument which says, the illusion of the person, the illusion of selfhood, right, is very evolutionarily or biologically adaptive. But now, here we all are in this room, and we're talking about it, and now we've discovered that it is an illusion, and that really we are mechanisms all the way down. So now we're in a strange situation where we know that it's mechanisms all the way down, so why bother with the illusion? Mm-hmm. Why not just hey, listen, anything goes. Uh, you know, if this is, hey, you know, we've got this inside scoop, you know, let's, let's make the most of it, you know. Um, so where does, the, where does the possibility for, you might say, authenticity arise somehow? Mm-hmm. It seems strange to me that, that in some ways we, we want to have it both ways. We, we want to be uh, on the know, in the know, and yet we also somehow still practice a moral life and mm. love our children and all the rest of it. And that part is all we really know, illusion. It's just the brain doing its thing. And there happens to be a screen on which we depict it, right? And I can make the arguments as well as anybody else can make the arguments. And yet it seems like all like a kind of a house of cards somehow. 
And then when one says, but listen, tell me what that mechanism really is, or tell me what that matter really is. And then it all kind of evaporates. In other words, we know in physics that matter is not this, right? This is, you could say, matter as a sense object. Yeah, and in that sense from physics, we know that so many of the things we perceive are not what we think we perceive. Yeah, but you know, what, what you end up with is, a again, a world of mathematics, mm-hmm. a world of, of theoretical uh, entities and objects. And if you ask what they are, you know, it's more like that they all have the nature of the mind more than they have the nature of stuff, mm. you know. So you could say, you know, in place of... Uh, mechanism is a useful thing. A lot of the things in this room run by means of mechanisms. And the human body has mechanical aspects to it and so forth. And biochemistry and neuroscience and so forth. is, is a, lot of, a lot of macroscopic me- mechanical systems. I agree. But what does that mean, you know, about my lived experience? Mm-hmm. You know, keep coming back to the lived experience. Okay, the lived experience is one not of illusions. See, I would say it is all. It's the only thing we have in science. If those are illusions, then the empirical foundations of science that are based in experience or experiments which are, de- even in the most attenuated way, related to experience. That's what we have as our foundation. So there is nothing on the other side of that that gives it sanction, that gives it validity, it seems to me. So rather than see, this is again the subjectivity argument, rather than see that as problematic, rather than say, listen, when you're talking about mechanism, I actually think you mean sensory mechanisms, like my car engine. But, but that car engine, from the one standpoint, is only illusion again, right? It's right. just sense experience. <laughs> right. So that can't be it from one standpoint, but I'd say that is, you know, sense, trust those sense experiences. Make them carefully. Do them with intersubjective agreement and so forth. Mm -hmm. But that's what we have. That's where we live. That's real. Don't keep positing something on the other side of it that's somehow different. There is nothing on the other side that's different. Yeah. Another way to keep thinking about expanding this idea of what the work of morality is. I mean, I want to read this lovely thing you wrote. Because you talk a lot about love as something we need to take seriously. Um, Love allows us gently, respectfully, and intimately to slip into the life of another person or animal or even the earth itself and to know it from the inside. In this way, love can become a, love can become a way of moral knowing that is as reliable as scientific insight. I think, I think he's right. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you can't say that. You, know, you spend time writing, right? Yeah. What can you say about it? Uh, in live. Um, now, this is again something which, as a scientist, you can't prove, mm-hmm. right? So th- I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm trying to, though, speak up for, on behalf of, or for those people for whom that's when, when they hear that they go, you know, I know that place. It doesn't happen all the time, but I know that place. And, and at a certain point, it, you know, William James talks about this when he's writing about mystical experience. It's, it's, it's noetic. It's completely compelling for the person who has it and doesn't change anything for the two of you. you know? I could be right in the middle of this empathetic moment. Whammo. 
you know, I've just been converted or whatever. And everyone else in the room is going, you know, what's the big deal, you know? But it's to me, it's like teaching, you know? When I'm teaching a class and I'm up at the blackboard and I'm having my epiphanic moment in front of some differential equation and the students are all going, you know, looking at me cross-eyed. But then you can see the one in the back, you know, all of a sudden just got it, right? And then the one in the front goes, oh, I see that too. Then I make a few more calculations or throw a few balls in the air and they see it. In other words, it can be contagious, but each one has to do it on their own. It's a moment of insight. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is not something you can just move across the table, and the other person has it. It's it's an invitation to exploration, to think, to ideate, and then there's that aha. And I think you could say that the moment I'm describing there is a moral analog of that moment. Sometimes it happens at the hand of of a teacher, you might say a moral teacher or something of that, or a moral dilemma that you're in the middle of and you just don't know, can't see your way through. And then you make your steps and find that place where all of a sudden it gets clear. That doesn't mean you can't make mistakes. Somehow people think because you can make mistakes. To me, if you can make a mistake, then you can also not make a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they come with each other. And so much of, um, of the question here that arises is this question of whether we really have any choice or freedom to make mistakes or to get things right. Who are we? Yeah. And I mean, I have to say my head is spinning a little bit because, and I want to say as a lay person, as a non-scientist who, and I interview a lot of scientists and I love my conversations with scientists and I'm always just barely, barely grasping around the edges what we're talking about enough to ask a good question. Um, But I've had this conversation more recently with physicists who will say that there is really no room in the math, which is the only real thing, for uh, human free will, for for human action and choice and decision. So here we have the physicist who's saying that love and pain and experience are the only real things. And our psychologist who works in biology um, talking about us as mechanisms. But I... Um, and you know, I mean, I know, I know that's not just. I'm, I'm, I'm being, re- I'm reducing it there. But, um, you know, one thing about it, though, as a non-scientist, is uh, this, this, this view of the world of us as not having control and of everything we experience, all this complexity of us as being illusory. It's illogical. It's messy. It's not elegant. It's not all of those things that scientists insist on when they look for truth. And it just makes me wonder if we're just at this place where we can just see just enough to um, to make that observation at ourselves. But but that it's I mean it kind of that it, that it's so important that we keep having these parallel conversations because, as you say, this experience is the only reality we can work with. Yeah, you know, it's given first and foremost. You know, that's what we keep coming back to. So can't we start there? And rather than see it as illusion, see it as a way of invitation to pattern, regularity, all of which are fine. And there's, you know, it doesn't mean that... Uh, to, to me, part of, the, part of the reason I think this phenomenological turn is really important is that it also means that I can close my eyes and still I have experiences, my feelings, my thoughts, my dreams. 
that those are also open to inquiry. You know, because mm-hmm. they are also experiential. Mm-hmm. Right? My meditations. So I can, you know, boringly try to things out for 40 years and occasionally something opens up and then you, you step in. And then you take that as a place of discovery. So for me, it, it opens up science to a much broader perspective, a much broader terrain, a landscape, with many domains that can be explored, not just the physical universe, but also the mental universe. Hmm. I think that is, that is an insight from contemplative traditions, from hmm. Buddhism, but not just Buddhism, from, yeah, not just that Buddhism. has actually been kind of carried forward in time. Hmm. What are you thinking, Michael? I want you to jump in. Um, well, I, uh, I mean, to me, I, it, it, I don't find it at all morally depressing or morally hazardous mm-hmm. to imagine that experience is uh, here at the service, you know, the, the, of. Um, is is something the, our capacities for experiences are tailored to the career of a human being, which is different from the career of being a fish or any anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the idea that reality is served up to us in um, a uh, subjective way that suits human life, um, to me, is. Uh, very morally encouraging because I mean it allows me to say with some degree of certainty that the things that bother me that would humiliate me that would cause me physical pain I, I can I, I attribute those to you as well so I think it is one of the things that makes the golden rule a truth to be discovered I can know what's going to bother you I can know it Right. So um, and I can know it. I mean, even in a world where we hear a story a lot that there are genetic differences among persons, um, those genetic differences, for the most part, are trivial. They are trivial, trivial, trivial. Mm -hmm. They are just filigree. Um, In all of the important ways, we are the same genetically. Our brains are largely the same. Um, to me, the notion that experience is driven by matter is a terrific moral encouragement, ethical encouragement. It's not something I find discouraging or nihilistic. It's quite the opposite. So, you know, some of the work you've been doing recently that's really interesting to me is some of the work you've been doing with gratitude. Yeah. And, um, and you're also working on the cultivation of generosity and yeah. the source of generosity. I mean, and some of the gratitude work you've been doing is just about um, people cultivating really basic practices, really simple practices of gratitude, not even like every 10 minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> not even every day, right? Yeah. But that changing them and one imagines changing experiences for others. I yeah, you can't right. study that. But what is the point of that if it's all in the service of biology? Well, I mean, it's, it's, nice to, it's nice to know how we can 
inter, you know, what, what windows we have into people's lives to help them live better lives, mm-hmm. right? To live more fulfilled lives and happier lives. So to the extent that we understand what the effects of feeling grateful are, I mean, I, I like to understand what it's for, why we have this capacity in the first place. That's, you know, of real interest to me, how it evolved. But I also, you know, I'd like for people to be less miserable and less and more energized and more enthusiastic about their lives and, you know, to have better marriages and better relationships with the people they work with. So if I, if we can find simple things, um, like getting people to take stock of benefits in their lives that they might have gotten satiated to or jaded to and sort of reactivate those. Mm -hmm. Can you just say a little bit? It's really, it's, it's about kind of taking, I mean, imagine the dumbest thing you could come up with to try to help people experience more gratitude in your lives. What you'd probably say is, why don't we have them write three things down every night? And that's, that's the, probably the dumbest. That's the one we did. And, and what we found every (laughs) night, three things I'm grateful for today. Right. Right. And it's, uh, this was a simple, simple set of experiments that we published over a decade ago. And the work has been, um, people have really been excited about it because it seems to work, at least, at least in the short term. I'm not sure it's causing anybody to change careers or anything like that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or become itinerants or, or anything like that. But it does seem to be this very cheap, cost-effective way to help people experience more fulfillment with their lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to circle back around to the, this topic of mind and morality, um, I still feel like with your work as well, um, you know, what, and again, then this gets at, we haven't even talked about a definition of mind. I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on it, right? But um, it seems to me that a shift that has happened, even a scientific shift, but a shift that's penetrated our culture is... Um, you know, coming back again, again, but to our friend Descartes, that uh, that morality and I don't know a good life in a, in a more expansive sense of that is not just about willing. It's not just about thinking. Mm. It's about it's embodied. We 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 are becoming more connected. We are gaining a fuller sense of what it means to be human. Um. And so this kind of movement towards morality is about practices and habits and experience as well as just about any kind of aspirations or, Hmm. you know, behaviors in an old-fashioned sense. Right, right. I I think that's true. I think part of it is that it's so much easier to measure your carbon footprint, you know, yeah. or, or measure, you know, where your food comes from there's, uh, or to see what the uh, economic effects of your choices are. There's so many ways now that we, we, we can't, um, it, we can't, there's so much less ignorance to hide, to hide behind, you know, um, that it makes it uncomfortable to, uh, act in ways that could be hurting people, but you're not really sure with a whole lot of impunity. I think. I mean, I think we've lost our moral cover as the world has gotten more connected. Hmm. We've lost our plausible deniability for not thinking about these things deeply. You know, and I think also, I think also there's a way in which it's, it's, it's practical. It's not a metaphysics. 
We're not going to argue about mechanism and mind and so forth. We're just going to do good things. Right. You know, and uh, it's it's very embodied. It's very uh, today. It's the same sort of thing with meditation. Most meditation that takes place today with completely outside any spiritual or religious framework. Yeah. It just it just seems like it's healthy. It seems better. I seem feel better afterwards and so forth. And I'm I may be confused about my own religious or spiritual identity and stance. But listen, on this we can agree or. You know, in, in England, there's a dot B program where you dot you text somebody. Usually, these are teenagers. You text a dot B and to your to, like, to you, Krista, and then you stop, pause, and breathe. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then then you go on. Okay, and uh, you do that for each other. Now, this is not a metaphysical position. This is just, hey, I see you're getting out of hand. You know, calm down. You know, dot B. Okay. And now there's five million pounds or something being put into research uh, on this very extensively used program of attention training and and mindfulness. And that is just, you know, kind of going back to where we started, that's just a whole new layer of us thinking about what our lives mean, what... What, yeah. what our behavior means right. this this la- adding this layer often very much beyond the bounds of traditional religion, the places where these things were contained um, this layer of reflection i mean so the morality is not about an abs- you know a set of moral values or willpower yeah promulgated by a particular religious tradition or something mm-hmm. of that sort no or even just intention right it's mm-hmm. it's layered with relationships and practices and habits and reflection yeah you know in mind and life for example is a very large tent i'd say the majority of the folks within that uh, scientific and contemplative community are either materialistically oriented or agnostic on the whole question and there may be a relative handful who have a more active spiritual set of commitments but that's fine, you know, because we're not there to adjudicate that particular set of uh, ontological commitments, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that high-level stuff. We're there to do some experiments, do what seems to benefit, come to insights that uh, we have confidence will ultimately benefit folks, reduce suffering, and promote human flourishing. That's the, that's the line. And I think that's just the way it should be. But at the same token, I think personally <laughs> that it... The the good science, if you will, that's done also has this sort of agnostic character. And where I get worried is where the mechanism commitment and the materialist commitment is slipped in as if this were the only thing any good scientist could possibly believe. Right. Right? Right. Whereas I think that's just not the case. In fact, I would make the case that simply on the matter of science from the standpoint of good physics... Materialism is very implausible, or you have to reinterpret it in a way which makes it bizarre, you know. So, you know, this is not the place to trunk, hold out those arguments and so forth, but you don't need them. I think science doesn't rely on them. You know, if you ask somebody, what's the brain? Because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all about the brain. It's not me thinking, it's my brain thinking. That kind of language you see everywhere. My brain this did that, my brain did this, my brain did that. Not, I did this or I did that, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so what is this brain? Open up the skull and you look inside, there it is. It's just the same as the chair in front of you. It has no difference. 
So if the brain is the thing which is supposed to be the explanation, well, it's not the explanation. It's just like everything else. Okay, so what part of the brain is it that's that's somehow going to get us out of the the object, you know, uh, box? You know, it, it's brain all the way down. It's just, I mean, I don't see, you know, if if the, if this is an illusion, then the brain's an illusion. Then so it just feels to me like we're constantly in this infinite regress. Right. Seems to me that the term moral imagination may be something we're growing to, growing into, even with our science. Mm-hmm. That it's a more generous, spacious kind of language. I mean, you know, Michael, you talk a lot about um, moral progress. I mean, I think one thing you you're interested in and help chart is how how societies evolve morally and and the qualities and conditions that we can create that are necessary for that to happen. Right, right. Well, you know, one of the really practical things you said to me when I interviewed you a couple of years ago that I've never forgotten was that some things that we might, it might feel boring, you know, not nearly, yeah. like, like the, the absolute precondition for moral progress is safety, rule of law. Right. I, I think some of them are really boring, you know, I mean, and, not, it's not more safety is not. It's, well, it's one of these things like you point out that we take so much for granted. Um, right. I mean, the th- I think th- I, I really do think if we look at the long arc of history, mm-hmm. some of some of the things that make it make it so that we're living in the safest time in history, the most abundant time in history. We are the most fortunate people to have ever lived on the planet. And that's actually true in most places on the planet. You know, we we are living, if you like, blessed existences you know um some of the things that that are making that possible over the long arc of 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 history are sort of work a day they're not they're not mystical um they 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 may not even be particularly mysterious you know um uh, the invisible hand Properly regulated, invisible hand. Right, right, uh, right. You know, um, I think the rule of law is is has been a critical factor. Literacy, contracts. I, I really do. You know, the more and more I I think and read and and work on these topics, marvel at how privileged we are to have in to, to live in in cities where you can go somewhere and and, and prove that you own a piece of property. That's an incredible, incredible benefit to treating your neighbors ch- d- decently. We just take it for granted. We don't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. But, there, but there were plenty of times in, 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 in history, and, and still in lots of places today, where that, that privilege is, is, is some, not something that can be taken for granted. And it creates, it creates chaos. It creates instability. Um, it, lots of these innovations are, are what we've propped our morality on, I think. And it's, I mean, it's, again, it's so interesting to think about this, too, um, that safety is, um, and, a, and physical safety as well as a, a mental perception of safety, which may not yeah. be exactly the same thing, is a precondition for, probably for moral imagination. Yeah. In any yeah. kind of fullness. You know, in, in classroom also, you know, uh, t- teacher after teacher will tell you the first thing I try to do is make children feel safe. You know, and that they then they can build trust, and all the rest of the all the rest of teaching really has to to live within that 
moral context. If they can put their head down and do their work without getting whacked, you know, and uh, that they feel that they feel safe. So, yeah, what's true for society is true for children, mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the I think the the ability to take risks is really encouraged when people are not worried about their safety or where um, their next meal is going to come from. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a sort of basic, I think a, a a basic ability to take risks that is is encouraged when we know that not everything is on the line. So scarcity seems to be a real problem. So so a lot of these things have vicious sorts of feedback loops to them. When we begin to take some of these affordances away, you know, or threaten them, um, the, the system, some, some systems may not be resilient enough to have too many of, of these affordances peeled away before the system becomes, fra- you know, fragile. So I don't think there's anything inevitable about things getting better and better, actually. I think we need to safeguard uh, and sort of, um, if you like, uh, buttress what we've got and, and try to not, not take it for granted, not allow those, these rights we've discovered that people have. Well, how strange is that? People have rights. That's a moral discovery. Hmm. You know, and I think I think one last thing in this regard, um, this kind of conversation is very precious also. The fact that uh, Michael and I can disagree on certain fundamentals in a safe context. You know, there, uh, computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum wrote a book, Computer Power and Human Reason. It got him in huge trouble at MIT where he was a prominent scientist. I remember him talking with great bitterness and difficulty about how he was treated by his colleagues for even questioning the possibility of the infinite power of the computer and and, and the possibilities of artificial intelligence and so forth, because he was on the inside of all that. Hmm. First natural language program, he wrote. It was really rough on him. He had to leave the United States, went to Hamburg, where he had a home and so forth, in order to let things calm down and difficult time. Or another friend of mine at the Institute for Advanced Study, same sort of thing. And when I speak about these things and I raise these questions, it, it was, it's been difficult. Our community of scientists is very, con, you know, it's, it's got a certain set of ideological commitments. Bringing the word contemplative and physicist oh, is also not that easy you know, in the world of no, physics. All, these, yeah. all this kind of soft language of mine, you know, it's all hazardous. Yeah. You know, or you know, raising the question of materialism. Oh, man, you know, this is a dogma. I think of it as an assertion, you know. It's proof by assertion as opposed to by reason. Mm. And I want to, nowadays, you know, I'm old enough, I want to call it into question. I've never felt that it was adequate, you know, over the last 40 years of being in science. But for most of those 40 years, I felt like, you know, step out of line at your risk, at your peril. I've done it occasionally and more consistently, reasonably late in life. But... You know, we shouldn't have illusions about science, even today, welcoming the full discourse. You know, there are certain certain general commitments, and one has to be, uh, sort of pluck up one's courage, at least, to, to step into the fray. And then, you know, more often than not, I think there's a positive response. You can get hit a few times, but, you know, basically, that's fine. So I think, you know, 
we should practice this kind of work that you do in the public's public arena uh, more and more. You know, allow for that difference. You know, explore it with real respect and civility, and have it be the what Hannah Arendt might like as our public place of discourse, where really the most important ideas can be debated openly. And that doesn't we don't have to come to a, a single conclusion at the no. end, but we've aired them. Yeah. We've done so with uh, respect and care for each other. I want to um, open this up for questions. You know, we can't see. I think we may need a little light, or someone else will have to. Um... I think they can put the house lights okay. up a little bit. So while you're figuring that out, let me just um, let me just uh, ask you about this, uh, Michael. You, you've used a couple times. You've used the language of that's a discovery, that's a moral mm. discovery, and I kept thinking uh, when I was getting ready to talk to both of you about a conversation I had years and years ago with a cosmologist named George Ellis, who's from South Africa, who has this idea that ethics, and I think he might use the word morality or moral life also the way we're using Mm. it here, is uh, discovered rather than invented. Mm. And the way, you know, people will say, you know, Einstein discovered the laws of relativity, the laws that the laws of physics are somehow embedded in the fabric of the universe for us to discover. And George Ellis believes that, you know, that a moral sensibility what we call ethics, is also embedded in the fabric of universe for us to discover. And, you know, across history, it's traditionally been philosophers and theologians who are on that frontier of discovery. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's so interesting that we live in a moment now where psychologists and biologists and even physicists are on this, you know, neuroscientists are on this frontier of yeah. discovering. Yeah, it's, it's a strange uh, world um, where one of the, you know, one of the greatest psychological mysteries that that we're trying to tackle right now is why people are mean to each other why they're nice to each other what the what the bases for these sorts of interactions are um and it is informed by philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and ethics so it's it's one of the, i think it's one of the most vigorous areas of social science right now and it's it's intrinsically multidisciplinary mm-hmm. so in a lot of ways it's a great great time to be be doing it because it's there's so much to learn. What do you what do you two think about that idea of of morality being somehow there for us to discover rather than invent? Well, you know, for for me, I think that there are two ways it can be interpreted. Right, one is a way in which, in some sense, it's the biology of evolution, evolutionary psychology, the neurosciences that underlie, you might say, any of our actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. What you're discovering is just a fact about history and biology. So it's, it's like a law of science or the law of physics, you know, but now in this case, it, it's more in your realm, Michael, than my realm. But um, I, th- I think of it differently. See, I think of it as all of that evolution, all that neuroscience, all of that gives biological support to the possibility of ethics. Mm. It doesn't predict ethics. It just gives, it's like necessary but not sufficient. Sure, I need a hand in order to write. Chop off my hand, I'm not going to write very well. Okay, so I need a biological support to hold a pencil. But writing is not explained by that biological support. Mm-hmm. It's necessary but not sufficient. I think the same thing is true for morality and most of what we talk about in terms of evolutionary psychology, neuroscience, and all the rest. It's sure, there's an infrastructure. There, there's a support for it. You know? 
But that's not that, that's not you know that's not it. That's not enough. I, I agree with that. I mean, I to, when I when I talk about ethical discoveries, I I I, I would not want to be getting my ethics from my biology. That's a bat, don't go there. It's not the place to get it from. Um, it's it's somewhere. It's to be gotten somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But I think. All, all I wanted to say when using, and maybe I was being playful and using the term discovery, but I do think that some of what makes those ethical adv- advances possible are recognitions of similarity or universality, um, which are not always easy to see. Um, they're not easy. They may not even come to the untutored eye without the benefits of science, the universals of of, of hu- human nature may be difficult to see with the naked eye. Mm. So, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. But again, to me, um, what what these advances, like the notion that the people have human rights, I don't think that is written in our, our biology. That was call it an invention if you like, but it's a really good one. It's a really useful one. Right. Or, but is is it a is it a piece of reality that that we only evolved to be able to articulate. I guess that would yeah, be the other yeah, idea. Yeah, that's the other idea. Yeah. And, and the fact is that every individual has that possibility of making that discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite people on the planet was uh, Marguerite Poirot, lived around 1300, and she lived a, a very, she was a Beguine, and she lived a very kind of proper uh, Beguine life, you know, as a lay monastic kind of person. Uh, but she wrote a book called The Annihilation of the Simple Soul. And, and in, in that book, she desc- describes how she has fallen in love with love. And as a consequence, she has left behind the virtues. She leaves behind the virtues hmm. in order to embrace love itself. And then she quotes Augustine, love, love, and do what you will. You know, that this becomes the moral axis. So it's no longer the church telling her what to do. She says, I leave the little church and now I go into the large church, the great church. So she left the little church of the virtues because she, I think, discovered the source of the virtues themselves, codified and rigorously enforced. She was burned at the stake as a heretic of the free spirit. Hmm. That's the heresy. You know, we <laughs> let's, let's hold on to the free spirit. And... Uh, hmm. I think she was 600 years ahead of her time, you know. And uh, we all have that possibility now of making that discovery, stepping out. Most of us have, I think, in this room, probably stepped out of the little church. We may be finding our way to the big church, but uh, it's, it's that, that, that way and pathway of, of discovery that you're pointing to, mm-hmm. not yeah. just communally, but individually. Yeah. Let's hear from you. I can't. Are the mics roving around? Okay. Okay. Are you all introverts? I like to bring the mics around because I think it gives introverts more of a chance than if they have to actually get up and stand in the aisle. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah. Michael, um, I have a little question for you, and of course the professor as well in physics. Um, we, we're in the age, a digital age now. Uh, I'm a teacher by profession, and I, I am concerned with the fact that 
we have um, see, students seem to be and people seem to be generally more digitally connected and less and less socially connected. Um, there seems to be challenges with interacting with each other. And I know you mentioned a lot of stuff about social progress and so on. I'm wondering in terms of the work, are we looking at how an evolving um, digital world and some of the ramifications or impacts it may have with respect to social cohesion? Um, yeah. And I'm particularly interested as a teacher because I see that quite a lot in the college classroom. I have another question. I hope you will bear with me. Um, I am science trained, but yet I'm forced, or my chair normally requests that I teach environmental ethics, which has, and I teach it with resistance, seriously, lots of resistance. Any other advice you could give along those lines for any of the members of the panel? Uh, I'm going to pass on the second one um, because I don't know anything about it, and any advice I get would give you would be professional malpractice. But um, <laughs> the, um, on the first one, I, I think the the, the capacity, you know, the the prospect of digital communication is very interesting, um, and not it's not an entirely um, unmixed bag because um, I think it's probably quite likely we're going to find that students who have done so much of their interaction um, uh, uh, virtually are going to be really good with language, um, perhaps even better than we are. I, I, I don't have any evidence to, to back that up, but the degree of nuance that it takes to communicate tersely and with the proper tone and the proper level of uh, implication, I think is, at least that I see in my 13-year-old, is um, kind of a work of art sometimes, and it's way beyond my ability. So I, I have a suspicion that we're going to find they're actually quite good with communication, and even with anticipating other people's emotional reactions to what they write. Um, I can't wait to see how the data come out on that one. Um, there is a problem. I mean, I, I think, I think there, it, it is, to some degree, it is a mixed bag, however. And when we, we know this just from area after area after area. When people are allowed to influence social systems without reputational consequences, um, there is a, that really is opening up the Pandora's box for lots of mischief. So in forums where you're allowed to um, express feelings, express emotions, hurt other people's feelings without facing the reputational consequences because you can do it anonymously, um, it's really actually very hazardous. So that's a real problem um, as well. Um, Cyberbullying is, is real. It's painful. I don't know how much of it there is. Um, I suspect we hear about every single horrible case about it on the news. I think probably every single horrible case of it is served up to us at night when we get home. Um, but obviously that's very real and something that needs um, to be taken very seriously as well, though. Yeah. You know, technology has always had these two sides. You know, um, it just goes with the craft, so to speak. Uh, it, it, it's destructive and, and has potential for being also liberatory or, or connecting. So on the one hand, you have knowledge of the, you know, how your produce is being grown in Nicaragua or how a manufactured item is being produced in, in Southeast Asia, you know, by virtue of a, a hashtag or a little uh, barcode that basically connects you into the universe. And you can make moral choices on the basis of that. I mean, that's something that, again, where the moral hazard associated with impunity, the impunity of being able to manufacture under deleterious circumstances or inhumane circumstances is now revealed, right? So that's a, that's a positive. 
And, and kids, you know, teenagers and college kids, they, they respond. They're angry. So the moral outrage becomes global. Our, our consciousness, if you will, starts to knit around the globe. By the same token, that, that depersonalization of you know, watching five people around a table at a, going out to dinner and all of them are texting around the world or to each other across the table because they can't get, you know, it's kind of crazy. And I think something is lost. Uh, you know, everybody's got their own iPod and their own I- earbuds in. You know, whereas I'm living on, on a little hilltop where we, we all happen to play instruments. So very often we get together and we sing and play. How you've quaint. Got, you've got 10 or 12 <laughs> you know, people just improvising and doing what they do. And that's a real pleasure, you know. And I, and I would love to invite that next generation into more of that kind of social dynamic, which is... Uh, without the cell phones and without the technologies and just the simple pleasures of speech, song, instrumentation, whatever. And uh, I think they could get used to it. You think what? I think they could get used to it. They are also doing amazing things with music on, you know, with music and technology. It's true. Yeah. I think there's here. I have a question related to climate change and ethics and the arc of progress. On September 21, over 400,000 people, myself included, participated in the People's Climate March to demand decisive action from our leaders on climate change. And almost every week, there's a new report about acceleration of climate change, its consequences, today from the Pentagon, and also an article about rising sea levels, the highest in 6,000 years. So my question to you both is in terms of rooting the discussion of morality and ethics and progress in our contemporary situation in which we're actually facing, I think, a downward trajectory in this arc of progress. And it requires harnessing the best of all of us, but also governmental action. And if we look at concepts of property or the Enlightenment, these are all rooted in specific historical situations. There, there are universal values, but they're also very historically specific. So in a way, what you're discussing seems somewhat abstract to me when we're facing these very real challenges. And my question would be, what insights do you have to offer in terms of what you're saying about the expansion of empathy, not only toward each other, other cultures, but also toward all living beings? Yeah, I, I think this, this, this final step that you were talking about, of not just towards ourselves or non-human animals or something of that sort, but to could say nature as a whole is something that we can and should undertake, that, that empathic, I might say, relationship. And I think it's possible. You know, but again, you know, we, we ask the question, what do we take ourselves to be? You know, what do we take this natural world to be? You know, and I think those kinds of questions do have moral consequences. You know, if it's an extractive economy and it's basically a matter of dollars that you're going to maximize it while you've got the possibility, you know, then that's what you do. Uh, is there something? Is there some other reason why we should maintain the planet and and and, and support its long-term flourishing? And how do we do that? And what cost to ourselves that we're willing to really pay? 
you know, I, I often feel like we don't really know, we don't really have a sense for the magnitude of the changes that would be required. And so we are, in some ways, uh, I mean, I'm part of those, those enthusiastic marches often myself. But I think, you know, if we really took it seriously, our lives would all be extremely different. You know, the houses we live in, the apartments we dwell in, the services we expect would be radically changed and reduced. Uh, not, not easy. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It's just I think it would be important to really know what you're, what, what you're doing and how to make a, a, uh, an ordered set of steps to get there at the scale and tempo that's required. Or we'll be forced into the, to it at the end, you know, far too late. Um, and I think you're right to say some of, the, some of these discussions seem abstract and remote relative to the imperatives that we, that we face. And yet, academics can't help but do these sorts of <laughs> remote and abstract things. <laughs> Michael, um, I, I mean, this is one of the great moral issues of yeah. our time. One could say, well, what do you know about the psychology of how we're reacting or not reacting? Yeah. Well, I live in Miami, Florida, I should say. So um, I, I believe there are four or five million people in the United States living at three feet below sea, three feet above sea level or below. Two million of them are in my county. So um, we face the we are facing the impacts of of sea level rise uh, every every time there's a full uh, full moon and a high tide uh, coincident with each other. Uh, People take their shoes off and uh, it's becoming Venice. It really is. So um, the uh, we're in the same um, dilemma everyone else is uh, trying to act too late at what seems like too high of an expense to generate public support. I mean, it's the, it's the same kinds of commons dilemmas that people face worldwide about these issues. Um, cap and trade would work, some. Um, there are uh, mit- mitigation. I, I mean, I, the things that seem like they would work should be workable. Um, we have, but this is clearly a multidisciplinary problem. Um, that's um, it's hard for me to say things that I'm sure you don't already know, and probably um, uh, won't sound trite. But we um, we need to find um, mechanisms for um, probably shaming public actors um, because shame seems to be something very effective at the individual level, and it might scale up to. Uh, to certainly to corporations. Um, I don't know if it will scale to governments, mm-hmm. but um, my friend and colleague Jennifer Jacket uh, has written uh, a book. It's coming out soon called "Is Shame Necessary?" and it's on this very topic. Um, I, I highly recommend it. That's so interesting. I mean, that seems like such an old-fashioned concept, and it's the cutting edge of science to yeah. this to this big problem. <laughs> okay, to bring one- it back. Yeah, bring, bring shame back, back shame. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I didn't think that's where we were going to end up tonight. Um, one more question. I think, unfortunately, it's gotten late. Uh, first, I just want to thank you all. This has been great. And Arthur, I would be really curious to hear you speak a little bit about the role meditation has played in your life and to describe your practice and how it's affected your your uh, life in other domains. It seems like a constant undercurrent in um, what you've said tonight. So I, that would be interesting for me to hear. Sure. 
Um, 20 years old, I'm at the University of Michigan. And uh, going through one of those meltdowns that, uh, you know, you can go through at around that age where you've been a good student all your life and now you're wondering where, where is this going to go? And why am I doing this? Metaphysics professor who himself had been a long-term practitioner. Started reading in the literature then around meditation and began to practice and began to read more widely in the history and philosophy of science and, and, and related areas and began to re- reconnect with the reasons for my deep interest in the sciences and the exploration of the natural world and then increasingly the exploration of my own inner world. I can remember, you know, doing these exercises with a few, this is back in the 70s, you know, early 70s, you know, with a few friends and they all got bored with it pretty quick. But somehow, I don't know, I I stuck with it for those, now what, 45 years. And uh, it has become an intrinsic part of my life, you know, and I think it has shaped a lot of what I consider to be my identity. Um, And more recently, I've tried to find ways where the appropriate inclusion of practice could be seen as a pedagogical strategy so that one could speak about contemplative pedagogy in university contexts, again, completely non-sectarian, but the practices themselves, I think, have benefit, cultivation of attention, equanimity, certain practices that I think are practices that enhance ability to hold complex questions and situations so that creative responses can come can arise so forth and so on so that's been a big part of my personal life but increasingly also part of my you could say more public life and as we talked about a little earlier I see the fact that uh, it can become a not just a mode of you might say stress reduction or, or even attention cultivation but actually a mode of inquiry that it is possible to hold questions and to advance one's thinking by sustained voluntary attention on that, allowing for the complexities to grow, allowing for the question to enrich before coming to some premature uh, understanding, let us say, or partial understanding, but to really allow the insight to emerge from the situation. So there's a certain set of practices that's become important to me around that as well. So I think that uh, higher education, and and increasingly I'm convinced that already down in the grades and so forth, there are certain kinds of very simple practices that can be of real benefit. And again, these are things which don't require a metaphysical commitment, although for me, these are spiritual practices. And uh, I see them within that larger moral and ethical and so forth context. Um, But uh, that's a private business, so to speak. So uh, I've found both private benefit and I think increasingly sharing with others, you know, within uh, the community of mindfulness and meditation and so forth, uh, the real experience that not only personally, but even for social, educational and health benefits, that these things can really be valued, these practices. Michael, is, is spiritual a word that you use? I mean, either about yourself or something that you study or take seriously um, as a in human life. Uh, I, yeah, with that I, language, I take I do take it seriously. I mean, I'm not I don't have any particular allegiances myself mm-hmm. or any brand loyalties, 
but clearly it's a huge part of um, being being human and one that is is well worth trying to understand and probably it sounds like practice as well (laughs) (laughs) um i think we've um we've opened more questions certainly than we've um answered and that's okay because i think putting a good question out in the world is a generative redemptive thing um in some ways we've we've gone over some ground that the two of you are very familiar with as scientists um I guess I, I think it might be interesting here at the end to hear from each of you if there's some insight, some idea in this exchange that, you know, that, that struck you that you will kind of take away and keep chewing on. Well, I, I am very interested in attention and the extent to which it is cut up into a million little pieces hits me right where I live. So, um, you know, to the, to the extent that there are ways of husbanding your attention or using it wisely or frittering it, that's a, that's a pretty important question. I think for all of us to wrestle with, even, even in the context of morality, I think, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I rather, you know, I rather like the idea that um, by getting more familiar with it and getting, um, I don't even know, you might, add, you might even say that controlling it is the wrong thing to say, but certainly getting um, greater, greater facility with it, that seems like a, a, a powerful thing, really, that, that lots of us could, could benefit from in lots of walks of life, including morality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I really liked Michael's presentation on education, and uh, we don't often think of education. We think of it as all around intellectual, cognitive dimensions of education. But if you really think of what endures in a society, what makes a society, I think it's 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 not so much around you know, the calculus or. When I'm teaching my pre-med students at Amherst College, you know, and you're doing an oblate spheroid in the electric and magnetic fields around it for under certain kinds of charge distributions and so forth, you think, this is outrageous. This is so ridiculous. You know, this is going to be remembered for the test, maybe. <laughs> and then it's gone, right? And uh, so what, what am I teaching? You know, what, what's really the content of this course? And it has almost nothing to do with the specificity, specifics of the content per se, and much more about the presence of the instructor, the dynamic in the class, the social inquiry, the social process of inquiry and trying to understand something, which you may forget, discovering the joy in that uh, arising, and that, that this has actually a moral dimension to it, social and moral dimension to it, which is far more precious in some ways than anything else. Numeracy is almost a means to an end. Literacy is almost a means to an end, which is not numeracy and literacy per se, but the possibility of living the lives of people all around the planet virtually by, me, by an act of imagination because of literature. The possibility of, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm back doing special relativity and calculations and Taylor series expansions just yesterday. And I was thinking, how, what, a, what a pleasure to do these things after some years away from them so that I can make that calculation myself and not just read about the result in a book. And that joy and that sense of the beauty of mathematics and the, and the realization of this is an, a, a language that's shared by everyone who's numerate, so to speak. And that's also a way of connecting into other, other souls, other intellectuals, other mathematicians. So to me, I think uh, something I'm going to walk away with was your wonderful presentation and the idea that uh, we're, we're all committed to this project. I mean, I think this program in this location, think about it. You, know, you walk through these many, many halls and floors at hundreds of millions of dollars of expense, certainly, over time. Why? It's kind of an affirmation of the human, to me, the human spirit. There's this confidence that children, by the thousands that are running through the halls and looking at these gems and learning about evolution and the extraordinary dioramas that were here when I was a kid, still there. <laughs> you know, to me... You, you have this, and then you multiply it a thousand times at all the universities and colleges around the, around the United States and the planet. And you think, what more evidence does one need to have of the affirmation that this is a worthy thing, the cultivation of what it means to be a human being, not just intellectually, but also in the way that you were describing implicitly, morally and socially. And I think we can become more intentional around that project, you know. We worry so much about getting ahead economically and with all these cognitive things and really what we should be worrying about is how are we going to be together as a human community and a community that extends all the way into all dimensions of the earth, as you were asking about. So I walk away with that sort of affirmation at the hand of Michael's uh, presentation. I'm so glad you talked about Michael's presentation because we never got to it in this discussion. But I, I, I also did find that really striking that, um, you know, what was implied in, in what you were saying was that the, that, that the moral progress that comes through education is, is not even necessarily about the instruction, but about the experience of being with other human beings. Yeah, that's right. If... Gordon Allport was a famous social psychologist who wrote a book, actually, uh, it's 70, year old, 70 years old now, called The Nature of Prejudice. And I, I pulled it down the other day when I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to say. And he, he'd written in there, uh, I think the book was written in 46, and he said, there are two or three studies, one from a South African sample and another from a United States sample, suggesting a correlation between, a negative correlation between education and prejudice. However, the correlations are small, so we probably shouldn't pin our, all of our hopes on education as something for prejudice reduction. And I, <clears throat> I thought that was, you know, uh, I mean, I was not, it was nice as a scientist to discover this so many years later. Um, but I think those correlations really undersell what you get from education. Um, what you get is, is the ability to be together and the... Um, the inability to settle on moral solutions that don't include everybody. I think that's also really a strong case for why classrooms should include everybody. I mean, it's possible 
to shoehorn your way into another a, a classroom with 24 other students who look just like you do and who have the same number of parents as you do and who make just as much money as your parents do. It's possible in the United States to do that. And I think it's poisonous and the, at the end of the day for generating um, the, the kind of other regard hmm. that we need in a society that is as, as varied as ours is, politically varied as well, by hmm. the way. Hmm. Um, it's, it's possible to live in, the, in, the, in a neighborhood where you aren't going to interact with students whose, whose parents' political beliefs are different from yours. So um, for me, a big part of, this, of, of, what, of what makes primary education special that we that Thomas Jefferson didn't know when he wrote down what a, a good primary educa- education should include is one it should be universal and two it really needs to be diverse or else I don't think it works as well. Hmm. Okay, well we keep talking for hours. Thank you so much, Michael McCullough and Arthur Science, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.